Welcome to this Frequency Matters podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today I'm talking with Frank Cavallaro, CEO of A2 Global. Welcome, Frank. Thanks, Pat. Great to be here. So uh, recent geopolitical forces and legislations have kind of made a significant impact on the semiconductor supply and demand. And some experts are warning that there might be too much supply. But then there's also been some increased demand in short term uh, that we were unexpected. So can you tell me a little bit about the geopolitical forces in play in the chip supply globally? Sure. So I think what you're referring to is from a geopolitical perspective is the various acts in the U.S. known as the CHIPS Act, the European Act, uh, and now just recently the U.K. Act, which is you know maybe a week old or has been announced a week ago. And those are all you know, fundamentally designed to shore up the supply chain for, of electronic components at the wafer level, right? That's kind of their, that's all of their ethos. But if you look at them on an individual basis, they kind of get there in a different way. First and foremost, you have the America's one, which is, you know, billions, of, hundreds of billions of dollars. And although it's focused on chip fabrication, the other focus, and I want to say is equal focus, is not only securing supply chain, but making sure that high technology semiconductor process technology, as well as device technology, does not get in the hands of non-friendly nations, specifically China. And it just China recently, as over the weekend, ratcheted up that discourse by now saying that some of Micron technology products can no longer be sold in China. I don't know if you saw that, but it's, you know, there's kind of a tit for tat thing going on there. And I think, you know, the U.S. has made a pretty clear statement that we want to continue to be and or regain, depending upon which political party you subscribe to, our technology lead in that process, as well as high performing chips. So it's a dualism and we're throwing a lot of money at it, the Americas specifically. And with that, we're not only luring foreign semiconductor manufacturers, but also, you know, helping out some of our own domestic like Microns and Intels and people like that. So that's the America's chip, Chips Act. The European one's a little bit different. First and foremost, it's divide by 10, or the US is a factor of 10 to their hundreds of billions to tens of billions, right? So it's a smaller number, still a lot of dollars, Pat. But if you think about every fab being between three to $5 million, depending upon the process technology, those dollars don't go very far when you're talking, you know, $20 billion, $50 billion. I think they're at, if we're at 249, they may be something like 42 billion or something like that. So, and that's broken up over several countries, right? Primarily for them, it's securing supply, right? Big automotives over there, big industrial applications are over there. And those are, not only high-level chips, but also critical infrastructure components, power grid, gas, electric, those types of things. And that's what they're really interested in shoring up. Do they have an edge towards making sure high level of technology don't get into non-friendly nations? Kind of, but not as significant as the US. And then you get to the UK Act, which is a fraction of the European Act, which is a fraction of the US Act, which is, you know, I'm not quite sure what that is. You know, it is a about the size of one and a half fabs. And, you know, it's going to be tough for them to lure any kind of ongoing investment because it's, a, it's almost like a one shot deal. Right. So how many chips literally, you know, if you're playing roulette, how many chips can you put on your table as it relates to luring investment? Probably one. Right. So 
that's what the kind of the geopolitical factor is. As far as, you know, the potential for oversupply, we look at it differently. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, folks are aligned with uh, our position on it. We have recently completed a study of the semiconductor space, fab space, fab capacity from 23 to 26, right? So it's almost 27. So almost at this, when we did it, we did it in 22. So almost kind of a four-year kind of look. And if you break out the semiconductor fabrication technology level at the node level, right, there's four primary nodes of fabrication, right? There's sub-11 nano. There's 11 to 25, there's 25 to 65, and there's 65 plus. And if you look at each one of those nose size, Pat, over the next kind of four years, every one of them at just today's capacity, and I'll have a capacity conversation with you in a second, but at t- today's capacity is going to come up short. Yes, we're eating through some uh, oversupply right now, but I think it's less a question of supply and more question of demand getting balanced. And why do I say that? Because in typical constraint to normalize markets, you get a couple of things really quickly. You get pricing to fall direct from the manufacturers. You get a release of inventory as excess or obsolete to be sold off. And then you get normalization. Those three things have not happened. Direct from manufacturer pricing actually is going higher to secure future fabs. The Ability to release inventory or sell the inventory is not there because I think most manufacturers understand that if they sold the inventory today or wrote down no longer used inventory and had to buy it back tomorrow, then they would buy it back at a higher price. So that arbitrage doesn't work. And then we have not seen a, you know, really a return to normalization. I think we're just eating through the, through the inventory. And I think you wrap all that, the price of funds for a lot of companies on a global basis, interest rates going up. And I think that's muddied it a little bit, but fundamentally the demand profiles haven't changed. And it's what's easy about semiconductor fabrication is that it's linear math. So many wafers, so many wafer starts, so much, so much output. And you really, it's difficult for them to tweak that, you know, at a, at a pretty high level. So if you go back to the node, sub 11, 11 to 25, 25 to 65 and 65 or above, all new fab is sub 11. Some allocated fabs at the last two tiers, 65 and above and 25 to 65. And these are kind of just big buckets. There's a lot of little buckets in there, but big buckets. But at the rate of consumption now, incidentally, that's where you get a lot of your military aerospace and uh, commercial automotive, right? Because these are big installed user bases of legacy chips, even today's electronic vehicles are legacy by the time they hit the market, that's where they fall. And so that's still going to have a capacity constraint. And then you look at, well, if, will there be an oversupply in sub 11 nano or sub 25 nano? Well, you would think that, but my coffee maker talks to my dishwasher that talks to my refrigerator. I don't think that's planned demand. I don't think they plan that. I don't know what those devices, I don't know what my appliances are saying, but they're talking to each other somehow. And that's a silly example how every day there's new things getting invented that are using more chips. That it's just, it's an impossibility for semiconductor manufacturers to factor in all this unseen demand. They can roll up current customers and they can get an idea of demand, but it becomes an impossibility. And then you throw AI on top of that. 
which is primarily all going to be sub 11 type processing, your NVIDIA and your high performance scalar chips, hyperscalers and all that. And I don't think that's forecastable today because we are literally just starting to see the, not only the computing power of AI, but the actual applications in industry, commercial, consumer, what have you. And it's, it's powerful. So that kind of wraps it up. That's what I think about supply and demand and the chips fabrication from 23 to 26. Yeah, we're definitely just scratching the surface of AI. So that, that's the wide open wild west. Uh, you did mention defense spending, you know, by do countries consume a large in that amount? You know, there's a lot of increase in defense spending right now. Is that going to increase the demand? Well, if you look at the interoperability of just defense overall, right, we look at defense as country by country. And clearly, geopolitically, unfortunately, we are using up a lot of the military backlog of products. And if you look at the interoperability of products, products that are in the field today have to work with products that were in the field yesterday, but also tomorrow, if you get that kind of time. And we think about the countries that develop these products, we think about, okay, there's the U.S., there's Germany, the Ukraine, and what have you, you can name a country. And there really isn't country by country manufacturing and technology sovereignty. We're all using the same defense contractors. All these defense contractors are cooperating or they're competing for the same contracts. And as a result, you know, there's a lot more demand out there than just country by country. It's, they're all going to funneling to the same source of the products, if you get my meaning there. And then you hear Germany just quadrupled their defense spending to four or five building billion. Japan's doing something similar, not to that magnitude. Of course, you know, all of the other NATO countries are are doing that as well. And I, I think it's going to put incredible pressure on the on the defense air, aerospace supply chain infrastructure. Also, that's mostly 25 plus nano, which we just talked about saying that's not where the majority of the new spend is going to be. So although dollar wise, it's enormous, not all of those dollars for defense spending is electronics, of course, but a lot of it is more often than not. And I think that uh, we're going to find that with good intentions in the spending, we're probably following up their supply chain somehow. But it does seem like, you know, every country will want their own domestic supply of chips for defense and security reasons, especially the U.S. Does that kind of affect the whole capacity situation? and kind of ingrained that they might need too much capacity because they'll want to have it within their own country, at least for defense and security applications. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting possibility. And I agree with that to a point. But when you look at, uh, say, Raytheon, for example, they are one of the key primes for not only the US government, the Israeli government, Germany, UK. So it's going to be difficult to say only use it for us. Now, they may get separate versions country by country, which is not only going to constrain supply more, but if you get countries, and I don't want to use the word hoarding, but contractually obligating the defense primes to hold some, maybe that's a better way to say it, to hold some capacity for them, that specific country, the US, then it's going to lead to you know, more scarcity and maybe artificial scarcity because that's being held aside. Well, it's not artificial. It's just it's because they'll probably use it, but it's going to it's going to magnify the scarcity problem of 25 nano and, and, and larger. So I think there's a, there could be a real problem there. And unfortunately, that does not look like it's going away. <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately, not soon. 
So it seems like the automotive industry was hard hit by the chip shortages, but we may have gotten past that. Do you see the demand in that industry growing with the electrification of vehicles? I do, yeah. Demand for EV and EV-related. So it's not just EV, but if you look at today's modern vehicles, say 2021 to present, they have a lot of infotainment. They have a lot of tele telematics. And of course, now they have a lot of EV or partial EV or what have you. These have been designed five, six, seven years ago. It's not the same design cycle as you and I speaking on these consumer devices right now. These design cycles are longer. So these are legacy product chips already. And so as there have been a rush to the EVs and the more electrified automobiles, because they're just nicer, more infotainment, more telematics, you know, some level of autonomous driving, or at least keeping you in your lane. And then you add the EV on top of that. You're talking about a factor of 10 or 20 in the dollar amount of semiconductors in today's automobile, where it used to be $850 to $1,500 in a traditional combustion pre-2021, pre-2019 vehicle. Today, it can be almost 15000 You know, wow. and that's at just your, that's, I know, that's just at your base level. If you look at today's BMW 7 Series that's electrified, I had seen some specs on that. That is totally, total electric. All of the systems are touchscreen. You know, the most electrification you can get inside of an automobile that is up to $25,000 in silicon in there of various types, right? And that includes, you know, driver, driving behavior stuff as well. So real high demand there. I think the automobile manufacturers have done a great job. But in the great job they've been doing, they continue to get additional demand and it, it continues to throw some wrenches into the supply chain. Yeah. And plus, as they're electrified, then that requires charging stations. So you have to have a big charging network with EV and electronics and that. And then they're all wirelessly connected for streaming and all that. So now the wireless infrastructure has to be even more robust and larger. So it kind of builds on itself, I think. It does. And then if you think about you know, a lot of the manufacturers going to a subscription model for different services, right? So you want heated seats in the winter, maybe you only pay for it during the winter if you're in a climate that goes both, uh, that that has four seasons or two seasons and other types of infotainment or telematics that you want to use and you subscribe to them. Well, that cloud, it starts with a cloud infrastructure, which is unforecast, going back to, you know, demand and forecasted demand and supply of semiconductors, unforecasted cloud infrastructure, unforecasted 5G, 6G, E or whatever it is, wireless infrastructure, and that infrastructure that's going into the car may be forecasted, but to the point of how many vehicles they're going to sell, I think that's probably a little bit squishy as it comes to forecasting. It's the best we have, but it it becomes a circular reference in how much silicon we can devour at what rate. So we covered defense, automotive industry. Are there any other industries you see driving high chip demand? Well, I mean, those are today the, the big ones. Clearly, the consumer is a laggard right now as we all have our work from anywhere, work from home infrastructure set up. If and when we see a return to the office in some way, shape or form, right? And we were on a teeter-totter or a seesaw about that. That's going to, we left the office 2019. That infrastructure is going to need to be upgraded, right? So that could be a the next kind of fueling demand area there. You know, clearly... The new technology around 6, 6E, Wi-Fi, I mean, that's going to be the next kind of turn as well. So there are other areas of 
I think, latent or pent-up demand. But right now, we're looking at hyperscaler, cloud, defense aerospace, and, and vehicles, specifically EVs, are really driving the unforecasted demand today. So kind of summing it all up, you know, how do you see chip capacity evolving over the next three to five years? And, you know, will it have a critical effect on markets to have a healthy supply chain? I mean, I think we have learned a lot through the last constraint period. I think a lot of both commercial and consumer manufacturing companies or entities have gotten really smart really quick or got smarter as it relates to how to manage the supply chain. The only thing that's cautionary go forward and happens to be the biggest thing is that wafer fabrication is linear, right? So a fab takes so many years to get up and running. It's going to produce so many wafers that's going to satisfy X amount demand. And so as we continue in that circular reference that we spoke about, about more products coming out means more chips, means more products, means more chips, means more products, more chips. I don't think we're going to be seeing a a prolonged price softening in the semiconductor space. In fact, probably the opposite once we um, eat through or process this current kind of flat spot. So if you're in the semiconductor space or a semiconductor venture, I think you know, there's a lot to be bullish about. Uh, that's what we're seeing in the next three to five years. Yes, there'll be some rolling things in between. But just a few of the dynamics that we just spoke about over the last 15 minutes, and we didn't even cover the whole universe of the <laughs> demand dynamics. You know, it is, it's hard. It's hard to put a finger on it. And the investments that, are, that need to be made in order to satisfy that demand are big investments. And people don't want to be wrong. Investors don't want to be wrong. And I don't blame them. So I think we're going to be running at running the red line on semiconductor fabrication for probably the next decade. Well, great. Thank you, Frank, for talking with me today about the global semiconductor supply and how it's rapidly changing. It was very interesting to learn about the trends and challenges in the market. To our audience, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.